Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Another text that's pretty familiar to us, but I want to read from Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Again, if you're a guest here, you don't come here frequently, what we're about to do today is not normally what we do at all. We usually take a text of scripture and expound it like we're about to do. So this is a little bit different what we're used to, um, but I thought it was a, a good kind of change of pace and nice thing to do for the Christmas season to begin look at hymns. And so um, if, you looked at, if you're there at Isaiah chapter 6, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word as we prepare uh, to understand that really this is the infallible, inerrant word of God that uh, is um, without error and will not return void, that God himself is speaking to us, his people. And I love this beautiful, beautiful picture we see in Isaiah 6. Uh, the word says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, I, I really just cannot possibly imagine what the prophet Isaiah felt Uh, when he was taken up to see uh, the throne of heaven. Lord, really words just can't adequately adequately express uh, the feeling of hopelessness, really, that must be in his heart, seeing the glory of God, knowing who we are fully being revealed. So, uh, but Lord, you are, you're full of holiness. Your, Your glory fills the earth, whether people recognize it or not. And Father, my prayer this morning is, is simply that you would help us see that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, again, the scene from Isaiah 6 is probably perhaps the most stunning in all of Scripture, isn't it? Amen. Especially in relation to what it really means to be standing before a holy God. These verses in Isaiah 6, they're a vivid picture of the holiness and glory of our Lord. It takes place around the year 740 BC, as it says, when King Uzziah died, it's drawing to an end a time of prosperity for the nation of Israel. They're about to transition into a time of deep despair, which is why the prophet Isaiah was called into action. And so Isaiah is then literally taken up to the throne of heaven, and he sees the Lord sitting in the temple on his throne. And and the Bible says that the whole train of his robe fills the whole temple. And and that's significant. The length of a train of, of someone's robe, it was signifying the power of the person who wore it. 
His train was so long that it filled the whole temple. And then two seraphim were standing on top of the throne. And these strange creatures who had six wings covering their face and feet. They're, they're flying above the throne of God. And they are saying, holy, holy, holy. Amen. As a result of that holiness, the whole earth is therefore filled with his glory. It fills the temple. In fact, Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 2 that the glory of God cannot be measured. And so this fills everything. When the seraphim finally speak, the foundations tremble like an earthquake. And Isaiah feels the shaking. The temple is filling with smoke. And Isaiah has only one reaction possible. I am undone. I'm I'm ruined. Because when someone sees God for who he is, by the way, that is always the reaction. The way that you come to be a believer in Jesus Christ is first by getting a glimpse of the holiness of God. And when that happens, you know that you are undone. You do whatever's commanded of you. So I'm undone, says Isaiah. Why? Because I'm unclean. Everything about me and my being is unclean compared to that. Sure, I might be able to compare myself to other people all day long, but... I can make arguments as to why I'm better than this person or that person. But when I compare myself to the holiness of God, there's no comparison. I'm just simply undone. And that's the truth. So there we see the seraphim then takes the burning coals from the altar and he touches the mouth of Isaiah. Doesn't sound like a pleasant experience, does it? It likely wasn't. There was pain inflicted in what's being done here and what does the angel say he says behold this has touched your lips the iniquity has been taken away and your sins are forgiven see friends when we see the glory of god and then we are undone it is there that we find forgiveness see there's a direct correlation in verse three between the holiness of god and the glory of god holiness is this inward Perfection, this beauty, this this separateness, his righteousness, his majesty, it's the core of who God is. He is infinitely perfect. Holiness is separate, it's other than, it's unlike anything else. But but the glory of God is the outward display of that inward holiness. The glory of God is what we see. We don't see the holiness of God, we die, we see the glory of God. We see in the way where his love is is merciful, patient, and kind. We see the glory of God even in the sunrise or sunset, the stars, the sky, the mountaintops displayed, as it says in Romans, in his invisible attributes. His glory is how we see him. It's how we perceive of who he is. In fact, it's what we're called to ascribe to him. Our very purpose on this planet is to ascribe glory to God. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that glory is seen, we know, in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 tells us, And the word became flesh And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We are to give the Lord glory, to ascribe, to acknowledge his glory, his holiness. So I know that you're looking at your outline and you're probably asking, why in the world are we talking about the glory of God when we're supposed to be talking about a Christmas hymn? 
Why did I go to Isaiah chapter 6 and read the scene from Isaiah's famous vision when we are to be talking about a Christmas carol? Well, it's, it's friends, it's because this hymn really is all about the glory of God. You know, I, I could be very easily persuaded to think that the hymn we just sung and the hymn we're looking at today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, may just be the greatest hymn ever written. I'm not joking about that. In fact, there are two stanzas in the original that we didn't sing, and I showed them to Pastor Justin this week, and I'm just like, look at this. There are two additional stanzas that are so full of wonderful theology. It is. It's rich. It's, it's just incredible that a man could condense the entire gospel message into this rhyming poem. This whole hymn is about the glory of God, specifically the glory of the incarnate Jesus Christ being God. Hark, the herald angels sing. We're going to do the same thing we did last week. Look a little bit at the historical background. It might come across a little lecturely, but, but bear with me there. And then we're going to get to the theology of this hymn. Let's, let's start with the history of the hymn. And I very much enjoyed studying the history of this one as compared to the, the, the last week's Oh Holy Night. The date is in 1739. The hymn was first published in the year 1739 in a book of hymns written by the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. It was written in the book called Hymns and Sacred Poems. Charles was the younger brother, which I can relate to, and they became a great duo for the faith, which Adam and I cannot relate to. But uh, this hymn has a history that is really the polar opposite of uh, uh, O Holy Night. As we looked at last week, O Holy Night was a song that came to us by three men who very likely didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the men who were responsible for bringing us the hymn that we've sung today, some of the greatest theologians of the last 300 years in my opinion. In fact, I think you'll recognize pretty much everyone involved here. And so the first person involved is Charles Wesley, who's author number one. Who is Charles Wesley? If you don't know, he was born in 1707 to a clergyman in the Church of England. Charles Wesley was one of, get this, 19 children. If you have 19 children, two of them are bound at least to be good theologians. That's the lesson there. I don't know if that's encouraging or not. But um, in 1727, at the age of 20 years old, he goes to Oxford, the famous university in London. And and he forms a, a prayer group there because he wanted to get to the root of what it means to be a Christian. His older brother John joins the prayer group a few years later. And John, being a a little bit more of a gifted leader, he kind of takes over the prayer group. And the the two of them became convicted of the poor customs of the church. And so they were trying to figure out how the early church did things. So they really formed not a church, but what they called a holy club. Uh, They focused on the methods of the New Testament What were the methods they used to pray? What were the methods the early church used and how they organized their church services? What were the methods in their worship? What were the methods in what they sang and composed their songs? And that word methods eventually became a label for them and they were called Methodist. Yeah. 
The Methodist church was started by these two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, even though the church started much, much, much later. They kind of got back to that original uh, understanding of what John and Charles were doing, that prayer group. And so my grandfather, if you don't know, uh, who is passed now, was a Methodist minister. And uh, it was one of the biggest influences in my entire life. And the Methodist church is one of the biggest denominations in America, let alone the world. And so Charles Wesley ended up writing over 6,000 hymns during his lifetime. He was actually one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. Uh, But he actually didn't get saved until much later after he even formed that holy club. Uh, In fact, he and his brother Charles got saved much later after they professed Christ. And in fact, just one year after his conversion as an older man, he wrote a hymn for Christmas Day. In fact, that's the hymn we just sang. Except the hymn we just sang only has three stanzas. Charles Wesley wrote ten, uh, but later condensed into five. We've, we've never sung the final two. I think we're going to do that in our invitation. Maybe you've sung the final two, but that's the first person we see responsible, Charles Wesley. Um, and so, the second person, even more famous than Charles Wesley, who also authored Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is George Whitfield. Anybody ever heard of George Whitfield in here? Okay, good. George Whitfield became a great preacher, preaching a series of revivals that began a great awakening in the U.S. in the 1730s and 40s. It was a, a time of great renewal and repentance among the people of America. In fact, he's arguably one of the most famous American preachers of all time. Most of us don't know this, but George Whitfield. He was very good friends with John and Charles Wesley. He even joined their holy club in 1732 while he was at Oxford. But they were totally opposite in some theological areas, yet they were still really good friends. In fact, Whitfield even gave his pulpit over to John at one point in time while he went on a mission trip. And so in 1754... Whitfield seized the hymn of his friend Charles Wesley, but he thought it needed just a a little bit more of Reformed theology. So Whitfield takes the hymn, he makes a couple tweaks to it, he condenses the ten stanzas into five, and the, the Wesley brothers, by the way, were notorious for not liking their hymns being changed at all. However, later on in their life, when they reprinted this hymn, they reprinted it using the words that Whitfield wrote. So, there's a lesson there. If George Whitfield changes anything of yours, you go with it, right? So, the two great theologians are the people responsible for this song. And now, let's turn our attention to the music side of it. We get our music from the composer, Felix Mendelssohn. If that name sounds familiar to you, he's the guy responsible for the wedding march. The da, 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 yeah, um, I didn't need to sing it. You probably knew it. Um, so that's where we get the, the tune we sing for Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Charles Wesley, when he wrote the song, he actually wanted it to be sung very slowly. And so over the years, he used a whole bunch of different melodies, uh, even tried to sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace much later in uh, its... its um, its development, but Mendelssohn was born to a Jewish family, but when he was at the age of seven, he was baptized as a Reformed Christian. And in the year 1840, he composed a cantata called the Gutenberg Cantata. It was the 400th anniversary of 
the Gutenberg Press, right? So someone asked him if he would compose music to celebrate the statue that was being built for Gutenberg in Germany, and he wrote this cantata. Now, how in the world did that become Hark the Herald Angels saying? Well, get this. This is what's intriguing to me. The very important person uh, who is the last one to be involved, he's responsible for the arrangement. It's a person you may not know. His name is William Cummings. William Cummings was a big fan of Mendelssohn. He was a tenor who sung for Mendelssohn when he was a teenager. And in the year 1855, so a so hundred years later, after George Whitfield's rewrite, almost all of these men are dead. And even 10 years after Felix Mendelssohn is dead, William Cummings is reading this song by Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, and he falls absolutely in love with this hymn. And as he's thinking about it, he remembers a section of the Gutenberg Cantata. And he takes that section of the Gutenberg cantata, makes a few small tweaks, and that becomes the tune we use today for Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So today, you can actually go on YouTube and listen to the Gutenberg cantata, and it's remarkable how Mendelssohn wrote a song that so perfectly fits the words for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, even though he had no intention whatsoever to do that. So William Cummings had to do a few small tweaks to get it to be what we have today, and he almost never gets credit for that either. Yet, if it wasn't for this man, we may have never sung this song. This guy hadn't been reading this poem, knowing the song, and then merging together. You may never know this great hymn. So take courage in that. Friends, people may have no idea who you are. And yet you have no idea what kind of influence you might have on the work of the kingdom. This hymn is truly rich. We're about to move the theology of the hymn. Before I do, I wanted to read you a quote that I saw this week from John MacArthur who says of this hymn, It's not only my favorite Christmas carol, but it's one of my very favorite hymns, and I'm not alone. In 1872, the Church of England selected the four greatest hymns in the English language, And Hark the Herald Angels was one of those hymns. It is one of the greatest treasures that the church has musically. And it's a treasure to the mind and soul of everyone who has memorized the incredible words to this hymn. Let's turn our attention now to theology of the hymn. As I said, we're going to be looking really at all five stanzas. And so in these stanzas that that Charles Wesley originally wrote, he gave us five reasons why we are to glorify Jesus Christ, the newborn king. Let's look at the first. The first reason we are to glorify Christ is because he reconciles us. The first reason we're to glorify Christ is because he reconciles us. See, friends, I hope that you know this. You and I, we are conceived with an immense problem. We are conceived as an unholy sinner. Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Job 15.14 says, What is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous. See, Christ Jesus is to be glorified because he reconciles the great problem that God is, as we've already seen, infinitely holy and man is infinitely wicked. Jesus stands in the midst of that. The hymn starts off by saying, Hark the herald angels sing, 
glory to the newborn king. In fact, this is probably where George Whitfield made his greatest change. The original stanza of Charles Wesley's song says, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. What in the world is a welkin ring? Well, I googled it, uh, and it's an archaic phrase. Even in the days he wrote it, it wasn't even, nobody knew what it was. The word welkin means sky, firmament, or heavens. And so George Whitfield likely read this and thought, Charles, nobody knows what you're talking about. And so he changed it to hark the herald angels sing. And we are to hark. We, that's now an antiqua, an, antique saying. Antiquated, there you go. Antiquated saying for our day and age as well. We are to hark. You know what hark means? Listen, hear, listen to what the angels are declaring. And what are the angels declaring? Glory to the newborn king. This takes us to the story we read in our kids' time, back to Luke chapter 2. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. We have to read this story. Um, it's, the, it's such a beautiful telling of this particular story. And we'll read it in verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I mean, can you imagine shepherds just minding their own business? And then first off, one angel pops up, right? They're freaked out there. The angel says, Don't be scared. And then he finishes, as he finishes his word, his proclamation, suddenly the multitude of angels just appear out of nowhere. And they're singing glory to God in the highest. It's not glory to you because you're the shepherds I decided to come to. It's not glory to Mary because she's the one he was born to. It's not glory to Joseph because he stuck with his wife when everything went bad. Not glory to Bethlehem at this place. It's glory to the newborn king. Glory to God and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That phrase always struck me because we know, right? The only way for us to receive goodwill is to be at peace with God. And friends, the only way we receive peace with God is through faith. That's given to us by God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the, the song goes on, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Peace is on the earth only because God and sinners are reconciled. And so if this newborn king did not come, there would be no reconciliation between God and sinners. That's what the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us in verses 14 through 19. I'll go ahead and read that for you. It says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God reconciled the world to himself. Friends, it's important. We didn't reconcile ourselves to God. And therefore, he gets all the glory. And so he sends his son, and through God, sinners are being reconciled. That's how there is peace on the earth. And so what's to be our reaction to that? The song goes on. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. That work should cause us all, not just individuals, but the nations to bow down and worship. The nations who are nothing more than just mere men should bow down and worship and join the angels' cry of glory to God. And friends, one day that's going to happen. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the nations will rise and they will all praise the King of Kings. The song goes on, with angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Wesley begins his poem, not with prophets, not with Mary, but with that little town of Bethlehem, a town of great insignificance, until Jesus made it significant. Matthew 2.6 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus Christ makes things that are insignificant to be significant. He reconciles us from our point of separation of God because of our sin. And he gets all the glory for the work. So we're to glorify God because he reconciles us. Secondly, we're to glorify Christ, for he is Emmanuel. It's not enough that God sent a person to be a savior. Uh, That's why it's so important, by the way, how you feel about the virgin birth. This savior had to be God in the flesh. There was no other way. Jesus had to come to the earth to give up his life. The creator had to be killed by the creation So the second stanza starts off, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. It's all about Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 2 says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Friends, can I just encourage you to take a break here. From the Christmas season, can you just remember that verse? Because I got to tell you, what your lost family needs most that you may encounter this Christmas season, you know what it is? I'll tell you what it's not. They don't need your political reform. They don't need your vaccine opinions, your social justice ideas. Make a list of whatever it is you think that they need. What your family needs most is Jesus Christ. That's what we need the most. Even after we come to him, we need him every hour. Christ in highest heaven adored. 
As you saw in Isaiah and in Revelation 4, his song is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And people often ask me, Hey, what do you think we'll be doing in heaven? Friends, I really can't give you much of an answer besides two things. I've had people on their deathbed ask me this, and I I give them the same answer. Two things. All I know is this. In your presence is everlasting joy and pleasure forever. That's the first thing. Second thing, you'll be worshiping Jesus. That's the only two things that I can tell you that you will be doing. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, you want to know what you're going to be doing in heaven? You're not going to be fishing or washing NASCAR or anything you've heard in the cultural Christianity funerals of today. You'll be bowing down to Jesus forever. And by the way, if that's all we do, you know what that would be? Everlasting joy and pleasure forevermore. Jesus Christ is the great reward of heaven. He is in heaven adored. His reign lasts forever and he is the everlasting Lord. There is no end to his kingdom or reign. And so we will praise him for eternity. You looking forward to that? Amen. Hope you're there next to me and we get to say hello. Well, I don't really want to take breaks, but um, we'll just nod at each other. Uh, that goes on. The, sermon go, the, the hymn goes on in the second stanza. It says, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Obviously, by the way, late in time does not mean that Jesus Christ was running behind schedule as we often do. It means really at the perfect time. Hence, our memory verse, right? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, for thousands of years, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And at God's perfect time, He sent him exactly when he wanted to, to the exact parents he wanted to send him to, in the exact town he wanted to send him to, with the exact people in charge. And friends, that's important for us to recognize that, right? That that the Lord is always on time. Because we may be sitting around right now wondering, when is Jesus Christ going to return? I mean, it's been 2,000 years already. When's he coming back? Let me tell you, he'll come back exactly when he's ready. <laughs> At the exact time he needs to come back. That's when he'll come back. And he is the offspring of the virgin's womb. By the way, can I just tell you, the virgin birth is one of those hills to die on theologically. It really is. If someone denies that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, it's fair to say that they do not have a relationship with the Lord. Why? Because you cannot believe that Jesus was a man and not God in the flesh. You're denying the authority of Scripture if you do. If Jesus was just a man, he could not bear the weight of the wrath of God to save his people. To deny Christ's deity is to deny Christ altogether. It's very clear. He goes on in stanza 2. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
I love that he's veiled in flesh. We know that, right? Although Jesus is God, he took on flesh. And that flesh veiled his true glory and power. Colossians 1 tells us that in him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt in him. All that God is was in Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. Hail the incarnate deity. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Incredible words, again, from the Gospel of John. The stanza concludes, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I love that. Hear this. It just blows my mind that Jesus was pleased to dwell with us. Jesus Christ did not see it as below him. He did not say, I can't believe I've got to go down there and dirty myself with all those peasants. He joyfully went to the cross with the love of his people in mind and the glory of his father in mind. There was never a moment when Jesus begrudged the father for sending him to this lowly land. This land that's cursed with sin. He treasured it, friends, and he treasures you. He was pleased as man with men to dwell, and he is our Emmanuel. Matthew 1.23 Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So secondly, we are to glorify Christ, for he is that very God with us, Emmanuel. We're first to glorify Christ. Because he reconciles us. And the stanza two really has the central theme. We're to glorify Christ for he's Emmanuel. Stanza three has this. As its main theme, I believe, is we are to glorify Christ because he raises us. We're to glorify Christ because he raises us. Isn't that true? He brings us out of the pit. He raises us from the dead. Stanza 3 starts, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Hail or praise, glorify the Prince of Peace. He is heaven-born, reminding us where he comes from. Right? He, he may have been born to a virgin Mary, but he is eternally from heaven. That is his abode. And he is the Prince of Peace. His kingdom is not of this world. His righteousness glows like the sun. When it shines, it warms, it It causes growth, it provides light, and it dispels the darkness. That's what the Son of Righteousness does for his people. He warms the heart, he causes us to grow, he provides light to guide us, and he dispels the darkness out of our hearts. Stanza goes on, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Friends, when Christ rose from the dead, he brought that healing to us, didn't he? He rose victorious over death and Hades, and he gives us that victory in his wings. Read the rest of stanza three together. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Mild he lays his glory by, it's Philippians 2, right? It says Jesus lays aside his equality with God, has emptied himself of his power and dominion. He became a slave, taking on the likeness of men, being made visible as only a man. I mean, think about that. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, no one recognized that it was God. 
He laid aside his rightful throne. He laid aside his glory with meekness. He became obedient to the point of death on the cross. And and why did he do that? Well, here's where I really like the last two stanzas that we don't see. Because Charles Wesley actually uh, gives us three reasons. He gives them in the the third stanza, but he really uh, expounds them in the fourth and fifth. In the third stanza, he says, why did he die? So that you would not have to die the second spiritual death. So he could give us resurrected bodies and to give us a new birth that allows us to see eternal life. Then look at what he says in the, the fourth stanza. Gives us the fourth reason we're to glorify Christ. Fourthly, we're to glorify Christ because he restores us. Again, these last two stanzas, they're the ones that are hardly in any of the hymns. You've probably never heard of them. But Wesley, in this fourth stanza, he lays out at least four things for us to do. And the first thing is we're to ask Jesus Christ to come. He says, come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. The first response is to ask Jesus Christ to come. Listen, we know that salvation is fully divine work. God gets all the glory, but that does not mean we do not have a responsibility to respond to the gospel, right? From, from the curse in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and, and God the Father walked in, he asked Adam, where are you? What have you done? Remember, God didn't ask those questions because he didn't know the answer to them. He was eliciting a response and all throughout the thread of Scripture, we see that we're, we're called to respond. We, we glorify Christ because he restores us. And the first response to that restoration is to ask him to come. Make his home in us. Fix in us thy humble home. Fill me, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart and my life and reign over it. I need you. But secondly, we're to ask Christ to defeat Satan for us. Here's the second line of stanza number four. It says, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruising us the serpent's head. That sound familiar to you Old Testament survey folks on Wednesday night? That's the direct alliteration to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But notice though what's different. What Wesley says here is he doesn't say bruise the serpent's head. He says, bruise in us, the serpent's head. So so Jesus, don't just come into me, but destroy the work of the enemy in my life. Give me the victory. And isn't that what you really want as a child of God? To have victory over sin? That's what Wesley is saying here. Come, Lord Jesus, come in and destroy the work of the serpent, the flesh. How? By displaying your saving power. Third line says, now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. That which was destroyed by sin, God, would you please now renew. Which, by the way, he does. In Hebrews chapter 2, God doesn't help the angels, it says, but he helps us. There is no restoration for the angels, but there is restoration for us, but we've got to move on. The end of the stanza says, Now in mystic union, join thine to ours and ours to thine. Mystic union there references the thinking in terms of the supernatural. That, that's what happens when we come to Christ. You know that, right? Your salvation is a miracle. It's supernatural. Something supernatural happens. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, right? As marriage is the example of Christ and the church and it's a, a great mystery. 
Friends, when we come to Christ, there is a supernatural union, a mystic union where we become one with him. And we become the bride and he the husband. And this too is a beautiful mystery. We must move on to the last stanza. I told Justin I could preach 10 sermons on the amount of theology that's packed in here. I'm not. I'm just going to finish this one. The last stanza then says, we glorify Christ finally because he remakes us. Again, these last two stanzas, they're all about our response to the work of Christ coming. And he lays out four more requests here. He says first, and I love this, make us less like our old selves. The the line goes like this, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. A face, by the way, it means to erase or make insignificant. What Wesley's asking here is, God, make me less like Adam. Make me less like Cody Page. I've prayed that so often in my life. Jesus, make me less like who I used to be. And then then secondly, replace that image with you. We are transformed, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, from glory to glory. Second line in that last stanza says, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Who's the second Adam? It's Jesus Christ from above. We are to be made less like Adam, but more like Christ by stamping his image on us. Reinstate us in thy love. When we're separated from God, we, we were his enemies. And I think we need to understand this. Does God love everyone Yes, of course he does, right? But but let me ask you this question. Does God love the lost like he loves you? Uh, he, he, He doesn't. Here's what I mean by that. Does he love the lost? Don't be afraid to answer that. Yes, he does. Does he love the lost with the same intimate love that you have with him as his child? No, it's been broken by sin. He loves them in the sense that he sent his son to die for the world. He has compassion on them. He provides for him. But his love for you as his child by faith is immensely greater because you and I have been reinstated into his love. It's the love of a husband and wife. Love of a child and parent. It's an intimate, passionate, gracious love. That's our prayer, Lord. Reinstate us in thy love. And then... Let us thee, though lost, regain thee the life, the inner man. This reiterates what we just looked at above. It's a plea to regain that which was lost because of our sin. To regain life and become, become new. 2 Corinthians four sixteen says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We're being renewed. We're being restored into his image. Of course we would sing praises to God and glorify him for this. Lastly, make Christ known to us in our hearts. The last stanza of the song says this. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Wesley ends this great hymn with just one final plea. Jesus Christ, the newborn king, make yourself known to me in my heart. Change my heart, oh God. Make my heart burn for you. This is maybe the greatest hymn ever written. And we're, 
We've sung it already. We're about to sing it again. I know I rushed through so much that we really could have dug into. But friends, I hope you hear that this great hymn is the gospel message. Listen, God took on human flesh in order to redeem fallen mankind. It's why we celebrate this season. He was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, so that he alone could reconcile God and sinner. He was born with one purpose, to reconcile us, bringing glory to his father. What a great hymn to sing this Christmas season. Glory to Christ, the newborn king. Can I just tell you, Christmas season is often filled with strife, right? We're we're constantly reminded about the issues we have in this life, the issues of grief and loss, the issues we have amongst our family, the animosity there. But friends, let me just encourage you, sing this song. Understand that if Christ could reconcile you, a lost sinner deserving of his wrath to himself through the incarnate Jesus, And certainly he can bring restoration to your life in all these other areas. And though it won't ever be perfect until we get into heaven, friends, we work towards that because we know what we've deserved and what we've been given in the glory of this newborn king that we celebrate this Christmas season. Would you stand with me as we close? Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you, Lord, for placing into the heart of Charles Wesley a marvelous poem, a a majestic hymn that, Lord willing, will be sung for all eternity. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Father, we pray um, that we would truly hearken that which you have spoken to us through this hymn that was richly full of theology directly from your word, Lord, that you would use it mightily in our lives to draw us closer to you and understand your grand glorious purpose and reconciliation of your people, that we'd be about that this Christmas season, that we not let, Lord, what the world tries to make Christmas all about be the thing that causes us to be divided with one another, but Lord, we would understand who we are in light of your holiness, that we would be like Isaiah And Lord, we would see a glimpse of that holiness and immediately know we are undone, that we are in need of your forgiveness. And Lord, therefore, we would display your glory and the glory of King Jesus and his gospel. Lord, would you receive all the glory and honor for you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.